It's Wednesday, May 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Some dogs in Iowa have been quarantined after officials detected a vicious disease, and humans could be at risk too. Several cases of canine brucellosis coming from a small dog breeding facility have been confirmed, and the disease is zoonotic, meaning it can be passed from dogs to humans. My producer Miranda joins us for what to know. Next, there is another battle brewing over your data, and this time it has to do with e-scooters. To operate in cities like Los Angeles, scooter companies are required to share data on scooter usage such as pickup locations and exact routes taken. Companies like Uber and Lyft are objecting to this data grab for fear that it might cause further regulation for its other businesses. Ariane Marshall, writer at Wired, joins us for why scooters are the next data battleground. Finally, what happens when you take away your teen's phone? Sometimes they turn to burner phones. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about one family and the fight they had with their daughter over phone usage, how it tore apart their family, and tips on how to identify if your teen might be using a burner phone to stay connected. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So that's why we treat it conservatively the way we have to try and find all the dogs that came from the sale and make sure owners are notified. We also issue quarantines to make sure that we stop the spread of the disease. Joining us now is my producer, Miranda. This is such a curious story. I didn't even know something like this actually existed. There's a small dog commercial breeding facility in Marion County, Iowa, that has been the source of multiple cases of a canine disease that can be transmitted to humans. It's called canine brucellosis. It's highly contagious among dogs and it can cause all sorts of problems with them. Miranda, tell us real quick what canine brucellosis is and how it affects the animals. So this is a bacterial disease and it's called zoonotic. And before the story, I'd never even heard that word before. And zoonotic means that it's a sickness that can be transmitted from one animal to people or other types of animals. And it's spread through reproductive fluids. That's not to say necessarily like seminal, but it is like blood or birthing fluid, that kind of thing. Urine, milk. Exactly. So it's an infection caused by the Brucella canis bacteria. It's highly contagious between dogs. It can cause infertility, spontaneous abortions, and stillbirths in dogs. It's been reported in North, Central, and South America, parts of Asia, Africa, Europe. It's been all reported all over the world, but it's really concentrated in this one county in Iowa. Not to alarm people, this is not a very common occurrence that it makes its way to humans or anything like that. And even the symptoms aren't as severe as manifests itself in the dogs, but it is possible for humans to get it. The people that are most at risk, since it has to do with birthing tissues and, and fluids mostly, are the breeders and veterinarians or people that might work at kennels. So how does it manifest in humans if they contract it? With humans, it can cause fever, sweats, headaches, joint pains, weakness. Basically, it manifests like the flu. That's how you feel like you have the flu. Long-term infection, though, can result in arthritis, recurring fevers. Less often cases can involve damage to your nervous system, your eyes or your heart. As far as dogs, they a lot of times won't even show any symptoms, but it can show swelling of your lymph nodes, behavioral abnormalities, lethargy and weight loss. Yeah, the Iowa State University said that the disease could cause a woman to miscarry or give birth prematurely, but 
Again, this is going to be an extremely rare case and probably only possible if they're like a vet or a breeder or something like that. Right. So and how dogs can contract it, they get it through the, those fluids and everything. But they even said that you can get it from other dogs, eyes, noses or mouths. So if dogs are licking each other or mm-hmm. something and th- that happens often where dogs are licking other dogs faces and things. So right now, all of this is concentrated on this commercial breeding facility in Marion County, Iowa. What do we know about them? This is what happened. This woman named Amy Hines, she runs something called the uh, a Hines 57 Pet Rescue and Transport. And she's kind of the whistleblower in this situation. She and her organization bought 30 dogs from this breeder at some kind of like an animal auction show, whatever. And they all tested negative for the disease. And when she got them home, they were all sick. They all have the symptoms and they are now in a 30 day quarantine. They're saying that this is really messing with the stray dogs in this town in Iowa, because now all of the animals in that town are under quarantine, including all of the shelters, et cetera. So there's no place to home these homeless dogs. Health officials are contacting anybody that might have purchased the dog from one of the breeders. Since this is kind of an ongoing illness, dogs have to be put down when they contract this. That's because there's no cure, there's no medication, there's nothing that can be done. Once you have it, it's a chronic condition and they're just going to keep getting it. And the other bad thing about it, as you were saying, you know, a lot of the times the dogs are asymptomatic. You can give the dogs antibiotics and it can suppress some of the symptoms and even give false reports on the tests. So if a dog has had antibiotics, it might show up as a negative test. That's why they have to quarantine them for so long and retest them. And there's actually suspicion that the breeder knew that the dogs had this disease, gave them the antibiotics to suppress their symptoms so that they wouldn't appear sick or ill at the auction and that they would pass the test. Because as of Monday of this week, they're no longer breeding dogs and their Facebook page says that they're shut down as well. Imagine being a family who just got a new dog. Now you have to test them for this. And if it comes up positive, you know, you have to get rid of the dog. That's just heartbreaking. But one more reason to adopt and not shop for your pets. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. A lot of companies aren't huge fans of this because they're a little worried that giving cities detailed information on things like where a trip starts, where a trip ends, where their riders are actually driving their scooters, the exact routes they're taking, is really sensitive information. Joining us now is Ariane Marshall, who covers autonomous vehicles, transportation policy, and urban planning for Wired. We're going to be talking about scooters again. It's kind of one of my favorite topics right now. I think they're pretty fun to ride. They service a big curiosity for a lot of people. People hate them because they see them as a nuisance on the streets. People love them because they're fun and easy to get around on. Cities, I know, are grappling with this all over the country, whether they should let companies operate within their cities. And right now there's a big fight between companies like Uber with the cities over how they're collecting data on scooter trips. I love the way you start the article off. You have to consider all the chaos that is going on on the streets of a lot of these cities, Los Angeles in particular, which we're focusing on here There's cars, there's all these ride hail drivers for Uber and Lyft, et cetera. Buses rolling by, we have cyclists all over the place, and now we have all these scooters. The cities really want to get a handle on 
where these things are operating, where the greater need is, if we need more scooters in this area or less congestion in this area. And they have set up this system with how to collect this data. And a lot of these big companies like Uber and Lyft are not having it. Tell us a little bit more about this, Ariane. There's been this brewing battle between some private companies and the public sector over data for some years now. And it's really come to head over scooters of all things. So the way this started out is over the summer, LA started putting together a special data standard for any sort of mobility device. So this is just a neat tool that the city can use to exchange information between itself and private companies. And once scooters started to hit the streets in cities like LA, they thought, huh, this is really interesting. Maybe we'll sort of test our data standard with scooters. Now, a lot of companies aren't huge fans of this because they're a little worried that giving city's detailed information on things like where a trip starts, where a trip ends, where their riders are actually driving their scooters, the exact routes they're taking, is really sensitive information. And they're a little worried that cities like LA, and particularly cities all over the country who want to copy LA's approach to data, how they're going to handle it as well. Yeah. And we all know that when you download these apps for these scooters, it's connected to your phone. So there's that point of connection there. You have to enter credit card information. So this risk of your information possibly getting out there. But how does this data standard work? It's called the Mobility Data Specification, MDS for short. So what are they collecting and how is this information updated? Something that's really important to know is that LA is saying that they're going to have very comprehensive data protection principles to ensure these companies and to ensure riders that they're protecting their information. So they say they're going to be collecting the number on the scooter and not your information. So they're not going to know that me, Ariane, is running the scooter. They're going to know that scooter A56A is going from here to there. And they also say they're going to anonymize the data and then also aggregate it. So it's doubly protected. And then they'll also say they're going to destroy data that they're not using anymore. As for the other sorts of information they're collecting, another thing that's important to know about the mobility data specification is it's not only a way for companies to send cities like LA information about where their scooters are, but it's also a way for LA to send the company's information. So they'd like to eventually be able to send them directions like, hey, there's a ton of people riding scooters on this boardwalk where they're not allowed to. Can you get someone over there to figure that out? Can you make sure your scooters are off that boardwalk? Or, hey, we see a lot of people are commuting from this area at this time. I think it'd be great if you got your scooters over there so people could use them. So it's kind of a two-way communication tool for cities and private companies to use. But this doesn't really assuage any of the privacy concerns for a lot of privacy-minded groups. They still think that there's a potential for misuse on this. There's an interesting complicating factor here as well, which is that LA, which has come up with this mobility data standard, it's not just for scooters. They want it to be able to be used for any sort of mobility device that's operating on the streets. So that could be bike share, that could be ride hail services provided by companies like Uber and Lyft. And for Uber and Lyft, that makes them a little bit nervous. They have had a history of gating between regulations in cities like LA and Los Angeles, for example, ride hail companies are regulated on the state level and not on the local level. So they're a little worried that this is a way for cities to start to exert local control over how they're operating their other business lines. 
some of the numbers are pretty amazing. In a previous episode of the podcast, we were talking about uh, injuries related to scooters, and they mentioned how there was 38 million trips taken last year on scooters. More specifically, in LA, there's eight scooter and bike sharing companies that are permitted to operate within LA County, and that number of scooters and bikes are 36,170. So there's a lot of possible data that can be collected. Something cities like LA are very interested in understanding is how people are using their scooters. They say, hey, if a lot of people are taking it from this part of the city to this other part of the city, maybe we need to build infrastructure for those people so it's safer for them to ride. Maybe there should be a protected bike lane that scooter users can also use. And also they want to see who's riding these scooters. They want to have an understanding of, are these scooters helping communities that have been historically underserved by public transit, by low-income communities? Are these things that are accessible to all different sorts of Angelinos? So there are a lot of questions that cities are hoping to answer based on this data. It's just a question of whether they can handle it safely and then whether these big companies that are worried about other sorts of regulations outside of scooters can somehow put a stop to how they're trying to collect data here. It's always hard to trust a government institution to do the right thing or even with the best of intentions, protect your data and your privacy. It's That's always a tough thing to swallow there. But this two-way communication, I mean, it seems like it could be a positive thing. Are these tech companies like Uber and Lyft, are they overreacting to this? I'm not sure they're overreacting. I think, you know, they're businesses and they're trying to, to make money. We just saw Uber go public at the end of last week. So they're really trying to prove that their business model works. And and they're concerned that if cities find out a way to collect granular data on their operations, they could, A, somehow release that data to the public, which is their proprietary secret sauce, and also, B, that they could use that data to regulate them and to stunt their growth at this important time for them to be making money. Ariane Marshall covering autonomous vehicles, transportation policy at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. started sneaking into her parents' bedroom where her phone was charging for the night and she would get it and then undoubtedly she'd fall asleep with it. Her parents would catch her with her phone and the next morning and then they would take it away. Repeatedly, her phone was being taken away and it would be taken away for sometimes months at a time. So she found other ways to reestablish contact. Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about teens and burner phones. You might think of a burner phone usually in the hands of a a drug dealer or somebody doing shady stuff, something that they don't want traced back to them. But increasingly, and, and you know this happens all over the country, parents are constantly fighting with their kids over their phone usage, you know, put that thing away, stop being on it so much. Teens are turning to burner phones so they can get around that. Uh, You know, maybe they get their original phone confiscated. It's so easy to get one of these extra phones. Maybe it's an older model that you connect to Wi-Fi or something and you can still get onto your social media apps and stay connected to the world and with your friends. So tell us about this family that you profiled in your article, Julie. I spoke with a family in South Carolina whose daughter received her first smartphone when she was almost 14 years old. And it was really the start of a lengthy battle with her over when she could use her phone, what she could do on it. It started out being kind of a fight about social media. They didn't want her to be on Snapchat. And that was the first thing she downloaded. Of course. 
And she learned how to be sneaky, and she could hide those apps and folders where they wouldn't be readily apparent when her parents looked at her phone, or she would delete them when her parents would ask her to hand over her phone for occasional checks. But the big problem really started when they had her turn in her phone to them at night. They didn't want her up all night texting her friends and sleeping in too late the next day on a school day. That's kind of when the trouble really began, because the nighttime was when her friends were done with homework and sports, and everybody went online to text each other, and she was left out of that. So she started sneaking into her parents' bedroom where her phone was charging for the night and she would get it and then undoubtedly she'd fall asleep with it. Her parents would catch her with her phone the next morning and then they would take it away. Repeatedly, her phone was being taken away and it would be taken away for sometimes months at a time. So she found other ways to reestablish contact with her friends. That primarily was burner phones, which were basically any phone that her friends weren't using anymore. If a friend upgraded to a new type of phone, they'd give her their old one. She could just get connected to Wi-Fi somewhere. And when a kid gets a phone nowadays, it becomes their lifeline to the outside world, to their friends, all the social media stuff. You're just constantly connected and it becomes such an important part of their lives. I remember when I was growing up, my lifeline was our main home computer in the living room and it was me staying up late going on AOL Instant Messenger and talking to my friends and everything, but you don't need that anymore. One of the interesting things that you spoke to a retired detective for uh, high-tech crimes, they said that almost every high school across the country, there's a kid who sells their burner phones from their lockers. That might have been a little bit of hyperbole, but the point is that this is really widespread. You don't always have to buy one. You know, Friends will just give their friends a phone that they're not using anymore, or mom and dad has an old phone sitting around in the junk drawer. They'll fish that out, give it to their friends. People can also go to almost any store and buy a prepaid cell phone. You can use that too. And Wi-Fi is everywhere. So, you know, it's really easy to to get connected and stay connected if your official cellular phone is taken. Tell us where things started escalating for the Van Everys. You mentioned the Wi-Fi. They would notice their daughter walking away trying to connect to a neighbor's Wi-Fi sometimes. They did have a phone contract spelling out the rules and the consequences for breaking them, but they didn't enforce those very well. Things got worse and worse as their daughter got older. The enforcement issue was a big one. You know, one parent would let her have the phone back for a little while so she could check Instagram. The other parent didn't want her to have the phone back, so there wasn't united front that the parents were presenting about it. Kids can always take advantage when they know that one parent is maybe more lenient than the other, and they weren't communicating well enough with each other to realize that that was happening and she was, could kind of wedge in between them sometimes, get what she wanted from one parent if the other wasn't. The consequences that were drawn up in these contracts, they weren't always applied consistently. She never knew when she was going to get her phone back. Sometimes they would take it away for a longer period of time than what the contract actually stated. And things intensified. She got older and it became a, more of a social issue. And one night she had a sleepover with her girlfriends and her parents asked all of her friends to put their phones away at night too. That was a source of embarrassment for her and her, her friends didn't want to have sleepovers at her house anymore. And then she got a boyfriend and there were some photos on the phone that she didn't want her parents to see. And then came the big uh, thing she... that I think a lot of parents do when they're fed up with their kids. They say, if you don't want to live by the rules in my house, move out. And then that's what their daughter did. She moved out and with a friend she, and her family. She did. She left. Their point of view is that they felt like if they continued to allow her to stay at home and she was breaking a lot of their rules, not just the phone rules, but other rules too, that that would be enabling her. So she left. And while she was out, she did get a part-time job. She was paying for her own phone at that time. She was paying for some car insurance stuff and other little bills. So, I mean, I'm sure she learned something from there. But I think this is kind of something, this could be an extreme example, but I, I'm sure this type of tension happens across the country with all sorts of families. So what do parents do? What can they do to help in a situation like this? 
You have to really understand what's going on. And there's perhaps a fine line between spying too much on your kid versus kind of just having an awareness of what they're doing and giving them some freedom to figure things out. But, you know, your job is still to be a parent and you're paying for that cell phone. And so you have a right to know what's going on. There are apps available. There are parental control devices where you can check the activity that's going on on your child's phone. And you can see if unknown devices are connecting to your Wi-Fi network at home. But above and beyond all of the parental controls and tech issues that parents can do to keep tabs on their kids, a lot of experts say you really just need to talk to them and you need to speak openly with them about the dangers of doing certain things, you know, posting pictures that you don't want to have come back and haunt you. Speaking with people inappropriately online, knowing that all of those things are never really private and come back at some point in your future and having those ongoing conversations. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.